Warning, the podcast you're about to hear sounds terrible. Also, its moderator is an idiot. Hello, welcome back to Obscurity Knox. We're not dead yet, but that's not for lack of me apparently trying to kill it. Stone dead. The long and the short of it is that I am not very good at recording podcasts, apparently. Or at the very least, the equipment that I use is subpar. No, it's probably just me. Anyway, I did a podcast interview with John Hurd a year ago today. And it didn't record properly. Uh, it sounds awful. I can't explain exactly why. The only possible explanation is that he called in using video Skype. I wasn't recording video Skype. And maybe that caused the issue. Uh, thankfully, I had a backup recorder running for the majority of it. So there is a halfway decent recording. But I got so thoroughly depressed at how bad it sounded compared to how I wanted it to sound that I just kind of sat on it. I'm sorry. Then I tried to revive the podcast a little bit later, interviewing Xander Berkeley. And for some reason, it still did not record properly. Except this time, it completely deleted an entire file. Once again, I did have a backup recorder running, but not for its entirety. So I'm going to go ahead and issue these podcasts because the stories are good. The quality is crap, but the stories are good. We're starting with John Hurd. I hope you'll give it a listen. I hope you'll accept all of my apologies. And I hope you'll appreciate the fact that I do not plan to record another one of these things until I have an actual producer working for me. I'm looking for that right now. So, here's John Hurd. Look for Xander Berkeley in the near future. Thank you for your patience. Most of you probably don't even know who I am. You've probably completely forgotten this podcast ever existed, but in theory, I believe it's coming back. But we'll see. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Obscurity Knox, which I do out of the kindness of my heart and absolutely not for any money whatsoever. Our guest today has been in critically acclaimed films, box office smashes, cult classics, including, but in no way limited to, After Hours, Big, Beaches, Home Alone, Awakenings, My Fellow Americans, and Lest We Forget, Chud. Uh, TV-wise, he's been on The Sopranos, Modern Family, CSI, Entourage, Prison Break, and The Immortal Sharknado. You'll soon be seeing him playing warmonger J.P. Monroe in the new movie Jimmy Vestfood, American Hero, which hits theaters on May 13th, and I'm thrilled that he's willing to tolerate being on this conceptually ridiculous podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, John Hurd. Hey, everybody. <laughs> well, as I say, I am pleased that you are willing to, to tolerate this, since it's completely ridiculous to ask about things that nobody, for the most part, is familiar with. But uh, as I say, the stories tend to be those that people have never heard before, so give them something to listen to. I heard once that somebody asked Bob Dylan a question about a song he wrote like 20 years ago or something like that, and he just looked at him and said, you know, kind of wasting my time. <laughs> I promise only to waste a, about an hour. <laughs> Let's see, I guess uh, the first item on our list, uh, and of course I guess I should precede this by saying that you've got your, your three virtual cards that you have the option to play if you want. Uh, if, if there's one that you just want to say no to, you may do that, uh, and I will ask no follow-up questions about it. Uh, if you want to do the one-liner, where you just have to offer a one-sentence explanation about why you don't want to go into detail, that's an option. And then there's the, the switcher card, if you just want to take one of these and switch it out for another project of approximately equal obscurity level. Okay. All right. That's like an SAT test. It is. This is very, very complicated. 
I got like terrible grades on SAT. <laughs> Hopefully, you'll do slightly better on the podcast. I hope so. All right, so I guess the the first item on the list uh, would be a Broadway production called Warp. Warp. That's my one sentence. <laughs> That's my one sentence. I can... Well, I, I will say the the poster for Warp is absolutely fantastic. Warp was my sister Cordis's idea. You know, my grandfather had passed away, and she had flown to Washington D.C., where I grew up, to bury our grandfather, who was hilarious. <laughs> His son, my uncle Cookie, was we called him Uncle Cookie. And uh, while she was there, she got a call from Chicago, from the Organic Theater, from Stuart Gordon, that Cecil, Cecil O'Neill, I believe, was playing the lead part, was playing Lord Cumulus in Warp. <laughs> and she had to come back and then to get somebody else. And she said, what about my brother, John? And I went, I'm going to get me, I'm going to get back to I was jobbing in at the arena stage at the time. I was making $5 a call to be an extra. And uh, she said, no, no, you have to fly to Chicago and audition for work. So I did, and I went to see the show. I told this part of the story. But the great part about the story is that I didn't want to go. (laughs) And uh, I think it cost like 60 bucks at the time in the 19... 70 or whatever it was to fly to Chicago and I said I don't have I don't have any money I don't have the money to go to Chicago audition for Warp whatever that is (laughs) 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 like some carpenter uh, uh, show or something (laughs) so obviously uh, right then out of the blue my uncle Uncle Joe was standing in the hallway and he looked at me and he said, how much does it cost to fly to Chicago, John? He was from Florida. <laughs> and I said, I don't know. His court said, it's 60 bucks or something. And he reached in his pocket and he pulled out, you know, three $20 bills and said, now you got no excuse. <laughs> and that was pretty much the beginning of my career, thanks to him and my sister. <laughs> and made my grandfather rest in peace. But uh, I went there, and I was embarrassed, and it was real campy, and uh, I didn't want to do it. But uh, I went home and laid down on the cot that my sister had up in Chicago at Lincoln Park and staring up at the ceiling. I knew she was going to come home and ask me, because she was in the show. I forgot to mention she was playing Sargon, my, the warrior princess, <laughs> in a comic book episode, a comic book Serial comic book in three episodes, and uh, she had come. She came home. She was staring down at me, looking up at the ceiling, and saying, "Well, what'd you think?" And I said, "I ain't doing that." And I said, "I'm not doing that." She had these. This costume was cut all the way down to your, you know, your navel, and it's a big cod piece. And it had this, it was like, a, you know, kind of a macrame front with heightened shoulders and, and, and glitter. And everybody was dancing and prancing around and, you know, kissing and, you know, just real campy. And all I knew about the theater at that time was arena stage and kind of classical Catholic University so on and so forth and I was not 
well received. I didn't, you know, nobody thought, they thought I was cute but dumb kind of thing. And uh, I said, I'm not doing this, boy. This is out of my league. And she said, oh, yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not. You know, it's embarrassing. I'm just, I'm, you, know, you, you guys are like naked up there. <laughs> and she said, yeah, you're doing it. And I said, well, I'm not doing it. And she said, yes, you are. And I said, no, I'm not. And she said, yes, you are. And I said, no, I'm not. Why, why do you keep saying I am? And, and why and you can't make me do it. And she said, yes, I can. And I said, how are you going to make me do it? She said, well, if you don't do it, I'm going to tell mommy. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> it's true you know my mother was in the community theater and she was always saying get out of the house and take an interest in something so if she was going to go home and tell my mom that I passed this up I was going to catch it also <laughs> I, I, I didn't do it it went to Broadway and it closed in a week and my friend Keith Sarabiker replaced me and had two wisdom teeth pulled and had no idea that that was going to hurt. And uh, it was my entree into Manhattan. And uh, my sister subsequently went home back to Chicago to continue working with the organic theater. And I stayed in her apartment with my girlfriend. <clears throat> and my father had given me like $1,000 or something. And I tried to get jobs, worked a job in the fastest garment district pushing racks, and I tried to be a host at the magic pan and got fired because I let people sit wherever they wanted. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I was down to my last month, you know, living on St. Mark's and First Avenue, and Mark Metcalf was right across the street with, I forgot his girlfriend's name just right this minute, but... And uh, I got my drive, my hack license, and I was ready to, to drive a cab because Warp had closed. You know, we went next door. Uh, we were at the Ambassador Theater, and right next door was the Jesus Christ Superstar. And I walked in there, and I saw, you know, them float a swimming pool in, you know, from the rig. And just sing this song, this fantastic song, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar, who the hell do you think you are? If you think that you're so cool, walk across my swimming pool. And here comes the swimming pool, and I'm going like, oh my God, we can't, we can't compete with this. Are you kidding? We're out of here. And we had like three platforms and a tube, you know, to uh, simulate the outer space or something. And uh, so needless to say, what's his name? Clive Barnes. Clive Barnes, if you remember him, he said his warp is junk art in a junk world. So that was the end of that. And then I stayed and I was, as I said, I was getting my driver's license to drive a cab. And my girl, I was bagging groceries in the village. And uh, my girlfriend would come by and she had to, she had to help me do that. And uh, the next day I got a job out of nowhere, Hallmark. Hall of Fame, um, uh, I hate it when some people say, um, 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 but, but playing a congressman who did not want to give George Washington, uh, played by Richard Basehart, and sitting next to me was Ed Herman, God bless him, and we were two uh, congressmen who were not going to give George Washington any money for his silly revolution, and that's what, that was my first 
paying, you know, New York City TV job. And after that, it was just nothing but gravy. So that's work. That's what, what, if there's something anybody wants to know, work just, work just got a big, huge print up and everybody interviewed, except my sister, actually, who got me into it in some magazine about comic books. Really? And uh, it was actually turned out to be quite a sensational event, actually. It's ahead of its time, and it wasn't, wasn't uh, there was a big argument as to whether we should go on Broadway and fail or go off, off Broadway or off Broadway and, and have the same kind of campy audience that they had when they were in Chicago. And we chose to go on Broadway because we were ambitious little actors. And that kind of, we kind of uh, shot ourselves in the foot doing that. I think it would have had a very successful run had it been somewhere in the village, somewhere, some smaller theater where everybody was used to. They all made, they made everything up and they had sound effects that was that they were done by Stuart Gordon's brother. He would use a microphone to go, you know, make sound effects and head zaps and tumble and roll across the stage. And it was It was really fun. Well, I guess just as a sidebar, uh, I'm going to ask you about that production of Hamlet. That I can't even believe that cast when I look back at it. Oh, yeah. That was Sam Waterson's Hamlet. And I was, interestingly enough, I know this might take so, uh, when I when I was doing Warp in its rehearsal time and, and it was going to start, it was going to open on Broadway, <clears throat> I had an agent named Jeff Hunter who I loved and he wanted me to be very, he wanted me to be successful in theater and uh, no, no, this wasn't Jeff Hunter, this was Richard Astor Bill Alexander had actually come to arena stage and seen me standing on stage and given me his card and told me if I was ever in New York to look him up and I looked him up and he had this tiny little room next to the bigger room where Richard Astor Agency on 57th Street was housed and he asked me when I was rehearsing Warp to come by and my hair was dyed, it was long, I was all buttoned up from the cold and um, while I was in the office, Richard Astor, who was the head of the agency, he was one of those agents that had, you know, like uh, painted on hair and he was very gay and he looked at me and, and uh, Bill Alexander, who was his sidekick, probably you know made all the phone calls in the little adjacent square that he lived in. Um, he said, this is John Hurt. He's doing a show on Broadway called Warp. And Richard Astor looked at me and he said, well, I saw Warp last night, but you don't look like the guy. You don't, you're not the guy that played the lead. And I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> And he said, no, no, you're not. You know, you know, and I said, well, you know, and I had a skull cap on or whatever, knit cap and a winter jacket. And so he proceeded to say, well, take, take, take your hat off. You know, I took my hat off and my hair fell out and, you know, it was all orange or something. They tried to dye it blonder. And uh, he said, take your jacket off. And I went, took my coat off, you know. And he said, okay, open up your shirt. And I, by that time, I was getting a little nervous. I was like young and I'd been in the theater. And this guy was, was making me nervous, you know, like I was going, like, is this one of those stories you hear about? Like, 
you'll believe it's me if I turn around and check out my butt. <laughs> but that with that, the phone rang, and it was a casting call for a replacement for a, a, a play called The Changing Room. And he put the phone down sharply. He said, get over to the Morosco Theater and audition for this replacement. And I did. And it was the first time I'd ever been in backstage. And was the stage was open and on the dressing room doors was, was uh, Lawrence Olivier and uh, was the, it was a show called Butley. Who's the dark-haired, handsome actor from England? They were, I was in awe. Let's put it that way. And there was a lineup, there was an actual lineup, like you see in a chorus line, of these incredibly handsome young guys. And there must have been 50 of them, from standing shoulder to shoulder across the stage. And I was one of them. But this director, Michael Redman, he, had sp he spoke with a British accent, and he just went down the line, went, you, 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 and, and he pointed to me, and he said, "You, yeah, what, what, uh, what's with you, or something?" And I said, well, "He says, well, you, you you're not paying because I'm. I was totally turned around in awe of Alan Bates and Lawrence Olivier's names on these dressing being backstage." And he says, "This part calls for somebody that's kind of a smart ass." And I said, "Oh, you know." And he said, "Or someone who doesn't pay attention." And so he sent everybody off, and there I was standing there with several other actors, and he said, go home and memorize something of your own making, come in tomorrow and do it. And I memorized John Lennon and said, if I could be a fucking fisherman, I would. <laughs> and he liked it, and then he came back again, and the whole time I started getting scared, because this guy, Michael Rudman, was being so nice to me, and he came up to me finally at the end, and he said, can you do something? He wanted me to imitate a sports improv where I was razzing the batter, and he actually looked at me and he said, you know, this and this other Paul uh, Satorius was the other, the, we were this, this, the last two guys standing. And Paul Satorius actually had on two pairs of, we had to be naked in this show. It was a locker room show about a rugby team. You had to be naked and I didn't want to do that. And Paul was so funny because he had on two different, he said, do you think they want jockey shorts or boxer? And I said, uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> It's like a recurring theme, sort of. And uh, I said, "Why don't you? Why don't you wear both?" And he went out. He had a beautiful voice, Paul Satori. He's a very classically trained actor, and he went out and he bellowed out this Shakespeare thing and so on and so forth. And then Paul Michael Rudman, the reason I'm going on about this is because he later directed Hamlet. Okay. And with Sam Waterston, and he came up to me and he said, you know, I think you're terrific and I'd love to cast you in this, but I think you've, you've, there's something about you, you, you're too intelligent looking. And I said, well, I, I don't, I don't, I've never had that problem before, you know. And he said, well, can you do something that would dumb you down a bit? Do you, you think you could be, be this, 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 this fellow that we're trying to cast? He's not, he's not so bright. He's not very bright. And I said, he says, you just do another improv and just not be quite so intelligent or something, seemingly intelligent. And I said, no, nah, I can't do that. And he went, looked at me. He looked at me like I had four heads and said, what? And I said, no, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. And he went, you can't do that? And I said, no, I can't. You know, I think that other guy's right for this. 
and uh, it, I wasn't being sep- de- deprecating or anything. I just I didn't want to tell him that I was in this other show that I was in Warp, and so <clears throat> off I went. Warp closed, and months or a year later, he was the director that I walked in and read for the part of Gildenstern for in, in Sam Waterston's Hamlet. And there he was, and I was like, hi. Yeah. He looked at me, and Paul, and oh, Joe Papp said to me something that I've never quite fathomed. Mary Cahoon was a casting agency, which is a great, great Australian gal. And he wanted me to sing happy birthday to her or something. And then he wanted me to read for the part of Gildenstern. And I had my book, my Shakespeare book, and I had opened it up. And I looked through it and I said, well, Gildenstern doesn't have very much to say together. You know, it's kind of one line here and there, right? So I don't, and with that, Joe Papp was watching this audition and he looked up at me and he said, out of nowhere, he said, that's all right, John. We know you're from Arkansas. <laughs> I, said, I said, what? <laughs> you know, like, what the hell? <clears throat> I mean, if, I, if, if you, you know, I mean, we've all had experiences where somebody said something that we never understood. <laughs> that's, that's on the mirror of every dressing room I've ever been in since. <laughs> I have no clue what it meant. <laughs> And and, uh, I got the part. That's where I met Bruce McGill. That's where I met the gang of guys that I still hang around to this day. And uh, we did the show in the park. Didn't we? Yes. And I remember one time that there was this, in the park at that time, there was a castle behind the park. And we were all in tights, black. And Sam was center stage. I think he was doing what a piece of work his man and saying it to Rhodes Grants and Gildenstern and we were watching and out of nowhere comes this high arcing white object. Roar, you know, way up you know, like arcing, right? And seemingly you could tell it was gonna come right down in the to center stage. And we were looking up and kinda of looking at Sam and Sam I don't think Sam saw it. And he kept going doing Hamlet. But uh, I've forgotten his name. He's so funny, this guy. But he did gross. He did, yeah, Rosencrantz. <clears throat> and he and I both looked up at this object, and it was a golf ball. And it came out of nowhere, this little white spheroid on this otherwise black stage, you know. And it went, wing, wing, dong, boing. <laughs> <laughs> he was doing, oh, what a piece of work has been. I don't know, but it's reason. And this thing was going, wing, dong, dong, wing, dang, ding. And it landed. It hit Sam in the calf, in his retarded calf, and fell directly at his foot and didn't move. And the entire, <laughs> we were standing there looking and going like, I don't think they cover this in acting class. Like, what, what do you do when a golf ball shows up in the middle of, of a Hamlet soliloquy? That's what I remember. And I also remember palling around with Miguel and, you know, we had water pistols and bows and arrows and we would squirt Jane Alexander before she went on stage. And, you know, a lot of fun. <laughs> you know? And what else? 
Oh, you know, attaching genitalia to the letters to the king. <laughs> when he read them, and this guy checked you off, you got really pissed off one night. Uh, the letter went from Hamlet to Horatio to the king, and he has to open the letter, and he all shocked. And there's this picture of, of somebody's wiener and gonads, you know? <laughs> and and uh, he came storming off the stage at Lincoln Center, and who did this? You know, it was like, this this little guy, uh, oh my God, uh, uh, Richard, he was, a, he was a cute guy, he was the sweetest little guy, and uh, he owned up Richard Brestoff. Okay, yes. And, he, and Richard raised, you know, he's in the backstage, and he just came, he checked you out, he was a, a very, you know, bull-chested guy, you know, played the king. And who did this, who wrote this, this is absolutely disgraceful. And Richard Brestoff raised his hand and said, I, uh, I did. I, I, I was only kidding. And, and uh, Chuck said, yeah, well, it sucked. <laughs> and Richard Brestoff looked at him and said, yeah, well, so did World War II. <laughs> and that was, you know, like, we all remembered that, you know, like the stand up to the, Bully. <laughs> you know, we were, we were just little actors at the time. We didn't know what was going on. We were just trying to have fun. And Sam, uh, I worked with Sam later, and I worked, he came up and he watched me in a play called Streamers once, and he was very, he was always very, very nice to me. He was always very complimentary. And likewise, then he's law and order and all that. Good guy, really good guy. Next on the list here would be uh, Rush It. The Rush It? Yes. I think that's about a bicycle messenger service girl. Correct. Yes, Jill Eikenberry, I believe. Oh, man. <laughs> Was that in Portland, Oregon? Uh, ostensibly, it's uh, well, no, set in know. New York, but it may have been filmed in Portland. No, I'm, I'm, I might be, I don't even remember what part I played in that. <laughs> I think that was like the first movie I ever did. Let's see, I, no, I, I don't remember what I did or, uh, that's a, that's a, you cast, in that's a top character. Yeah, I knew Tom because we had the same manager, but no. I don't have no, I'm drawing a blank. Okay. We can make that the one-liner if you want. One-liner would be, yeah, rush it. <laughs> That's all I mean. One-liner is, I don't really remember it. Yeah. Uh, let's see, the next, next up, uh, On the Yard. Well, On the Yard was Joan Nicklin Silver's husband, Ray, and we went down to State College, Pennsylvania, which is into what they call a sissy prison. And we stayed in the motel, and there was a bar restaurant right next door. And we went into the prison every day. And I was playing a character that when somebody asked, what's he in for? Uh, the, the response was jaywalking. 
And uh, then somebody else said, no, he stomped his old lady to death. And I remember there being, there was a lot of trouble because one of us swiped a football from the inmates. And uh, you don't want to piss them off. So I remember that. I remember there was a kid who has got to be the classic geek-looking kid with the flappy hat, you know, the fold-up ear flaps. Prison garb was brown. had his browns on, brown shoes. And because he was such a model prisoner, he was allowed to help out on the camera crew. And he was the sweetest guy, but he was very, very quiet. And, uh, you know, he was a, a, you know, a gopher kind of guy. He went and rolled cable or whatever. He just did little odds and ends and was happy to be part of this homemade movie. Joe Nicholas Silver did uh, Between the Lines. And they were a husband-wife producing, directing team. And they took a liking to me. I took a liking to them cast me in a couple of things but this kid who was helping out on the movie he had glasses he's just definitely the most innocuous looking person you've ever seen in your life and uh so, so you know standing around one afternoon and somebody says i wonder what what's uh, ronnie or something whatever his name was uh, you know i wonder what the hell he's in here for which always comes up but you're afraid to ask <laughs> so somebody said why don't you ask him so okay Hey, Ronnie. You know, he's like, yeah. What the, what the heck, uh, what happened here? What are you doing in this joint? You know? And he said, oh, uh, manslaughter. <laughs> and I, we were all kind of went, we all fell down, you know, like. And he's, he, uh, he said, you, you, you like killed somebody? And he's like, well, yeah, I guess, um, kind of. <laughs> and, uh. How'd that happen or something? I mean, I don't know how any, I don't know, I can't even go back, I can't remember well enough how that we would ever get this out of a, an actual column, you know, because it's so not cool, you know. And he's told the story of growing up with his brother and his brother's buddies, and his brother always razzing him, always telling him how dumb he was. If he did anything, it was the stupidest thing anybody ever did. You know, you'd ask him to go get something. You'd always bring back the wrong thing. You know, and Ronnie, you know, you can't find your ass with both hands. You're the dumbest guy. I'm so sick of you. You're my brother, but I mean, there you're dumber than dirt, man. <laughs> and he was telling the story, and he said, one day I looked at my brother and I said, if you don't stop picking on me, I'm gonna kill you. And his brother was there, and his brother's friend was there. And his brother and his friend started laughing at Ronnie and saying, oh, yeah, right, Ronnie, you're going to kill me, right? Sure. Then Ronnie pulled out a gun and blew him away. And the friend stood there and said, God damn, Ronnie, that was the dumbest thing you ever did. What the hell did you do that for, you idiot? And Ronnie looked at us and said, yeah, and then I, I shot him too. <laughs> That's what I remember about on the yard. <laughs> I'm not sure how you would forget that. Whoops, can be deceiving. Uh, okay, next up, I, I got to be stories on this one. Uh, Heartbeat. Heartbeat was Nick Nolte and Sissy Spacek, and Nick and Nick and Sissy were serious. Nick was always joking, laughing, and joking around. And 
I was playing Jack Kerouac, and I was playing Jack, uh, John Byram directed it, and he was, it was about the menage a trois between the three of them. And I had read Maggie Cassidy and Jack Kerouac, and I was taking myself then much, much too seriously. And I was, I was all about authenticity and Jack Kerouac, and I have the build for Jack Kerouac. I was self-conscious, and but I did have the the kind of mood and the subjunctiveness or the moodiness of Jack, you know. So I was sort of being always serious. And John Byram was, what the hell's the matter with you, Herd? I mean, this is like a comedy. You know, I want this to be fun. I mean, these three people loved each other. They jumped on each other. You know, he's always prodding me to lighten up. And he, he actually one time went out and got my girlfriend and put a ladder behind the camera and had her sit on the top of the ladder and make faces at me so I'd stop taking myself so seriously. And uh, one night, Nick has a buddy named Billy, and Billy and Nick and I would, would ride through the dark of night in L.A., after work every night, hit every bar. Nick would end up somewhere, I mean, uh, yeah, Nick and Billy, we would end up somewhere in some girl's house with pajamas on and hair curlers, and then we'll go and gaga over Nick. And one night we got the idea that we were going to break into John Byron's house because he had a wine closet in the cellar, and Nick and Billy... So let's go over to Byron's and get into his wine closet, you know? Next, you know, let's go over to Billy. And uh, we did. And while we were busting into his home, Byron was actually upstairs. And we didn't, you know, we thought it was funny. But we never knew whether or not Byron was scared to death, you know? Because somebody was breaking into his house, he had no idea. We had to shoot that morning. So he comes downstairs. He's tippy-toeing downstairs, and all of a sudden it's us. And he's like, ah, it's you guys, huh? Yeah, well, you didn't fool me. I knew it was you. And Nick is like, yeah, you didn't. Because Nick and John Byron always had this running thing all the time of trying to out, you know, out-punk each other. Nick would put some powder on his nose to look like he'd been snorting up a bunch of cocaine or something and stand in front of the camera with his nose all white and powder. And, you know, he would be waiting for Byron to say, cut, what the hell's going on? You know, multi, you know, something, something. And I, I was just sort of standing there, like, trying to be serious. <laughs> and... But Byron would never go for it, and he'd say, you know, it's funny, Nick, because whenever, you know, then Nick would be, like, <laughs> sniffing away and rushing his nose, drawing as much attention to the fact that he looked like he'd just done an ounce of coke, and Byron wasn't going for it, you know, and he'd just keep sniffing and sniffing and blowing his nose and ruining the take. And uh, finally, Byron looked at Nick, Nick and said, uh, you know, Nick, that's funny, you know, because when I have a cold like you, you know, it usually, you know, it slows me down, but it seems to be speeding you up. And so it was funny because we never knew who got who. And after we broke into the house, he had, he called the cops, and he had us arrested. And, uh, the cops showed up and cuffed us. And uh, we didn't know if, if, if he was going to let us go or something and say, ha, 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 you know, who gets the last laugh now? 
but we were pretty sure he was going to have to let us go because we had to work at six o'clock that thing. So that's some of the stuff I remember. I remember Sissy getting fed up with us. I was actually just going to ask because I couldn't imagine that uh, that like, Styles wouldn't be trouble. Yeah, one time we were down at the Roosevelt. We were downtown in an old hotel, and the cut, the table was literally covered with glasses at two in the morning. And Nick and I were sitting there with Billy, and Sissy had joined us. And it was late, and Nick was going on or something like that. We were teasing her and stuff. And here's a little Sissy Spacek, right? And she jumps up, and she lifts up her the end of the table, the entire end of the table. And every one of the glasses slid down across the table into Nick's lap. And she said, well, bless your heart. Now who's laughing? And she went off, and I remember that. But uh, I don't think the movie did too well for some reason. You know, did... Uh, I was like, Jessica Lang came in to read for that movie, and I thought she was fantastic. And Byron looked at me, and she said, ah, she's just a model. <laughs> so you never know. Yeah, I don't know if you are or not, but I've read that David Lynch is in the movie, playing a painter. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. He's uncredited, apparently. But uh, I've read it not in Let's see. How about, uh, would there really be a morning? Francis Farmer? Yes. With, what's her name? Uh, Susan Flakely. Susan Flakely? <laughs> you said it, I didn't. Susan, Susan Flakey? She was great. She was funny. What do I remember about that? I remember Clifford Odette's... I don't remember who directed it. I probably didn't do too well in that movie, probably. <laughs> no, Roald Dano and Lee Grant were, were parents. Yeah. But I don't remember me doing anything. Anything, I just I don't remember anything memorable. Years later, I worked with Susan, and she and I both recalled having working together, and she was really, we were going to play the parents of a kid on Southland. Yeah, and we, we thought we were great. <laughs> really did. And she I think she'd gotten she'd been married and she was she was like super sweet, you know, really nice. And we thought we had it made as a couple, you know, because I'm she jumps out or something or I'm 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 accusing my kid of smoking dope or something. That's all I remember about it. And she, I just remember her years later remembering me and being really, really nice and sweet. And I was surprised that uh, she gave a fig about me. <laughs> well, the uh, director was uh, Fielder Cook. Oh, my God, Fielder Cook. Oh, yeah, he liked uh, Catherine Walker and James Taylor. And he was a very, uh, very astute British fellow. He was always dressed and very polished. Very smart man. Very nice man. How can you not be with a name like Fielder, Fielder Cook? That's class. Like, you know, you're like the head of Parliament. <laughs> you know? Let's see. Next up is Bessie Finch. Uh, that was a bust. We went to Spain. 
All I remember is Levon Helm saying, when am I going to get to shoot the gun? When am I get to kill somebody? And, uh, he had his wife, he called Sweet Meats, and we sat around the lobby of this hotel in Algeciras, Spain, at, the, at Gibraltar. And Levon was just a hoot, man. And I think I don't think there's anybody in the world that didn't love Levon Helm. And uh, Canada had gotten a whole lot of money, and they wanted to fund this movie. And the movie kind of didn't. The plot sort of it was weak, you know. It didn't have. But uh, Levon would play the guitar, and every evening in this in this uh, seating area opposite the bar, where you would go up and order wiki, 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 and winton, winton. You be you want wiki? You want winton, winton cigarette? And we'd sit around and Levon play the guitar. Every night there was this. Decidedly, I don't mean to be mean, but she was very, she was attractive, but she was just not, she looked like she'd been smashed in the face with a frying pan. And she was, she sat and she was very not, I mean, I don't, don't, that sounds like I feel like I'm better or something, but she was there every night and then suddenly one night we were leaving that hotel and they had the loco wind. And Levon had, he was always championing, you know, Arkansas marijuana. You know, John, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, he's going to tell you, smoke this or something. And uh, smoke some of it. And he was, I think he was right. <laughs> we were leaving, we were all getting in separate cars and driving to this other section of town, this other hotel. And suddenly Levon comes out of nowhere and grabs me and yanks me out of the hotel, drags me out the front door of the hotel, throws me in the back seat of this car, slams the door and says, take off. And I'm like, what the hell's the matter with you, man? And he says, you know that girl? He used to call her Misery. He'd say, hey, you know, you, how's you Misery doing, John? Can't do my Levon Helm invitation tonight, but and he, he said, you know Misery? And I said, well, yeah, sure, why? And he said, Misery is the police chief's wife. And he's looking for you. <laughs> and he was. He was like this big Spanish guy that was hanging around the lobby looking for John Hurd, whoever that was. And Levon saved my life. <laughs> That's what I remember about that. Oh, there was also a time we were up on the mountainside and... Uh, I can tell you two story. One of them might not be. I was going out with Brooke Adams, and she called, and I had my friend Mickey Morris with me, and he said, Brooke called, and she said she's having lunch today with Kevin Klein just to drop some names, and I went. I said, like hell she is. You get down the mountain and tell her if she has lunch with Kevin Klein, we're thrilled. <laughs> so he had to go all the way down this mountain, because he was my, like, assistant. He's been a friend of mine since grad school, you know. <laughs> And, and he gets on the phone with Brooke, and Brooke just, is he nuts? Is he out of his mind? I've known Kevin for, you know. So I, he, he remembers that. He remembers having to do that on that movie. And what else was there? Was, uh, oh, 
know they killed one time, but their director, uh, Trent, what was it, Trent, he subsequently he asked uh, John Trent after he was the sweetest man, and he asked amongst the extras and the, the, the Spanish folk, was there anybody that could drive a stick? And uh, this one Spaniard guy kid just started hopping up and down, raising his hands, I can, I can, I can. And they were part, they, we were on, literally on a mountain road overlooking thousand foot drop and this was a getaway car or something like that and he needed somebody to extra to drive it and they had parked the camera on a tripod and this guy was so excited he raised his hand jumping up and down jumping up and down so john trent said okay you know go get in the car this is just you're just going to come zinging past the camera just around the curve you know we just need you to get it into second gear or whatever and the, the guy was like, okay, okay, okay. And he gets in the car and they call action and he drove the car straight into the camera crew. <laughs> <laughs> it was almost like, you know, it was like Laurel and Hardy. It was like Keystone Cops. Like, you, you couldn't imagine. I mean, they, he managed somehow to stop short of killing everybody. But they, really, the car never even went into a different direction except right straight at the camera. They were all spooked and running off and throwing stuff in the air. And, oh my God! <laughs> I, was, I was worried about Brooke and Kevin. Uh, jealousy. Uh, let's see. How about uh, Aunt Dan and Lemon? No, uh, that was a painful one. That was. Uh, Jesse Papp and, um, oh my God, what's his name, you know? Wally Sean wrote it. Wally Sean, the sweetest guy in the world. And he wrote it, and I pleaded with them to do this monologue playing her father. And she was a British actress. And to me, this was this is this is my arrogance, you know, like where I thought I knew what the play was about and it wasn't happening or something. It's like the birth of a fascist. And the director, Max Stafford Clark, I worked on my monologue and I had a little snort before the tech, and I I wanted to kick ass. And they had asked me not to, you know, but Resume Tischler at Public Theater and Joe Papp had said, you don't want to do this. It's just this one monologue and that's it. You're you're not going to be happy going over to London and just doing this monologue. And I said, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. <laughs> you know, I really want to go. I want to be in this play. I want to do this. But I, I guess there was some sort of prejudice in that respect because they never believed me. I don't know why. So I got up on stage in the tech and I did my monologue and for some reason or another it really pissed the director off. And he spent 45 minutes after the, we did, went through the tech through just chastising me as this arrogant, selfish, you know, I had my part down and, you know, was telling everybody else how to act, you know, what the play was about. and. I don't remember it being quite that bad, <laughs> but and he fired me. He fired me straight out. So I had promised Rosemary, and uh, through Rosemary, Mr. Joseph Papp, you know, to use car salesman, 
that I would not be a pain in the ass. Because this was the first time that the public theater had reached across the ocean, you know, to collaborate with the Royal Court Theater. And I, really, I felt terrible. I felt like, you know, man, I really screwed it up by getting fired. This guy didn't like me and thought I was showing off or something. And uh, so I sent Joe a box of Cuban cigars. And I said, I was sorry. And they all said, well, you see, we told you you weren't going to be happy. But I was happy. You know, I was too happy. And that's what I remember about that. I just recently worked with Linda. What's her name? Linda Holmes. And I apologized to her. <laughs> and it wasn't like she didn't remember. You could see that look in her eye like, yeah, well, John, you know, we all have our bad days. <laughs> So that's what I remember about that one. So yeah, I'll have to uh, send you by email a, a, an interview I did with uh, Bruce, actually, uh, about a, I think it was a PBS movie that he did with Linda Hunt. Uh, uh -huh. That was just apparently an excruciating experience. Uh, oh, really? Because of the director, not because of her. He, he loved Linda Hunt. Um, but yeah, I guess he played uh, Hemingway. Ooh. And, uh, that part, man. Had a ball apparently, except for the director. <laughs> yeah. Bull always summed everything up for me. He was like the master of polite, you know. <laughs> um, whenever I traveled with him, I was in good company because he would always maintain his, his uh, sense of propriety. <laughs> now, no matter what trouble I got us into, he got us out. <laughs> so, he was a great running partner. I miss him. Next one would be uh, the telephone. Oh boy, that was out of nowhere. That was I worked with Rip Torn and Geraldine Page in the Strindberg collection that Rip always wanted to do. Right. With his girlfriend Amy Wright, and I go Amy Wright. Yeah. And she'd say right. Mm. And uh, all I remember about it was that I said, "Here was Rip, you know, and Rip's legendary and all that." hands-on actor stage you know go to hollywood but don't stay there yeah and um uh what's her name? uh what's, i can't remember anybody's name anymore would be was on the set and i was playing the telephone repairman or something i came on the set and i was supposed to put her phones in or something yeah. and she was she was really funny and just the only really sharp member, there was just a moment of time when we were going through what we were doing, acting, and she just sort of looked at me and rolled her eyes and said, and I was kind of always looking around going, where's Riff? You know, where the hell's it, you know? Because I'd, I'd done a play with him, you know, and I was like, where the hell is he? And she'd say, never mind, never mind, just keep going. <laughs> He'll be here. Don't worry. And uh, I said, well, I have no idea what I'm doing. Or, you know, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. <laughs> and then out of nowhere and through this gigantic loudspeaker on the stage, on this, uh, you know, what do you call them? Stage. Stage. Not a, not a theatrical stage, but a, 
soundstage, this booming voice comes, you know, like, that was pretty good, let's do it again. <laughs> and that's all I remember. I was like, what the hell is he doing? And she looked, she, the boopy turned around, and she pointed up in the air, all the way at the other end of the soundstage, in this glass booth, like he was announcing some, a baseball game or something. <laughs> there was Rip up there with a microphone directing. And it just cracked me up because here's this guy who's so legendary theater, you know. And uh, there he was, you know, doing probably what he, he always hated, directing from a microphone, watching a monitor in a glass booth, you know, up in the air. And I, I just, that's, that's the memory I took away from that. That was just didn't seem like rip to me. It just seemed like, you know, he's going to get a job as an air controller or something. I find kind of fascinating that the script was, I guess, written by Terry Southern and Harry Nilsson. Oh, man, I didn't know that. <laughs> That's great. She told me, but Geraldine told me a Rip Torn story. I don't know if I should. But one day we were over at their house on 21st Street or wherever it was in Chelsea. And Rip was always getting angry with me because he was directing and I was, you know, he always thought that I wasn't following his direction on purpose <laughs> and making fun of him or something. He said, you know, anybody can poke a caged animal, you know, and, and he got upset with me when, because he had said, take two steps down, it would be better if you to walk two steps down right or something. And I walked two down two steps left and he got like, you know, that, you know, that's real funny, heard. You know, anybody can undermine what a director telling them to do by doing it wrong, you know, enough times. And finally, Geraldine, he was going to go off, you know, and, and uh, which was always a treat anyway. And Geraldine was sitting there and she said, oh, Rip. And Rip said, what? And she said, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe John just has a sense of humor. And I went, Phew. <laughs> I said, thank you, ma'am. <laughs> saved my life. She was, uh, she, when she passed away, they had a memorial for her on Broadway, and she was memorialized, eulogized on the day that my son Jack was, was born. Oh, wow. So that was a wonderful omen, whatever you call it, tribute. Memory. Because she was so sweet. And Rip was great, too. The, the, he gets a lot of bad press or whatever, but I don't know anymore, but he used to. <clears throat> but he's a father figure to a lot of us. I was, uh, actually, it may have, only, it may have been just in the very last episode. Uh, I was telling someone that my, uh, my uh, favorite Rip Torn story uh, I actually got from uh, Conchata Farrell. <laughs> Where uh, they had done a film together, and... Uh, I guess she had uh, shown up uh, and had been there for like a day or two. And uh, Rip said, well, do you want me to show you the town? And she said, sure. Uh, so he, she said, he's driving me around. He showed me this, showed me that. And I said, well, my God, how long have you been here? Oh, I just got here two days ago. Well, I, I, how, do you, how are you so familiar with everything? I make it a point to know every way out of any town I'm in. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> he taught me a, 
He said one time he was doing a play with Dustin Hoffman and the producers weren't liking him and they came to Ripley and they said, what do you think? Of, you know, is this kid any good? Otherwise, we're going to have to let him go. And uh, Rick told him, he said that he told him he thought he was fantastic. He thought he was a wonderful actor and he was great. And I said, so what happened? And he said, well, the next day they fired me. <laughs> What are you talking about? He said, yeah, man, you know, when they make up their minds, they're going to fire somebody, they're going to fire somebody. <laughs> I never forgot it. It was like pearls of wisdom in the head that he express himself. <laughs> see so next we've got uh actually you referenced working with sam waterston again later i guess this would be it uh mind walk oh that was uh sam and uh uh liv Berkman, uh, uh liv ullman liv ullman liv ullman excuse me and i was surprised one day she went off on me because i was playing this kind of misogynist but she had Sam and I got to a point where we just hung our heads. <laughs> I had directed it, had never directed before, and she's been directed by the greats, you know. And she's the greatest actress. And she would have to go through literally two pages of the dialogue and this very hard to understand interrelated connectedness philosophy of the universe. <laughs> As a scientist in Mont Saint Michel in France, and it was almost as soon as she stopped explaining something scientifically to both either Sam or myself, either Sam or I would go, "Oh, really? Well, how? Why is that so?" <laughs> and she would have to go two more pages, <laughs> and Sam would say, uh, "I don't, I don't buy it," and she'd have to go another two pages. <laughs> we, we just got to the point where we just grunt you know? <laughs> we would, would have to keep talking <laughs> I think she got to the point where she just wanted to strangle the director <laughs> she hated him and she wanted to be I mean she had if she had to do all this work she wanted somebody to help her <laughs> as it turned out she, I've, I've seen that she was terrific it was masterful the way she handled all that but she got angry with me one afternoon. She thought I was, maybe she thought because I was laughing with Sam or something like that that I was making fun of her. And I, my friend that I grew up with said, Heard, you've got the face, kind of face everybody liked to punch. <laughs> and uh, It served you well, though, as an actor. <laughs> yeah, when I wasn't, you know, when, when there weren't three of these faces. <laughs> So that's what I remember about that. And I had my son with me, my, uh, what is he, about three. And I took him everywhere I went. And remember that part of it. Mm -hmm. And had to do a, a poem by Pablo Neruda and just didn't feel like I gave it justice. <laughs> didn't feel like it was, thought it was going to be better than when I saw it. I remember that. Yeah. But it was wonderful. It was a great experience to be there in Mont Saint-Michel in France and with my son and Lee Bowman and Sam there, you know. <laughs> great folks. Great folks. And I guess uh, we're in the home stretch here. Uh, we've got uh, me and Veronica. 
that was the one you. I looked at it and went oh, blank. <laughs> that was the one that you you, you blanked, it, except for the fact that Michael O'Keefe was in it. Yeah, but <laughs> I don't remember Michael being. I was a bartender. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. The listening ear. Yeah. Was governed. Yep. When you said Michael O'Keefe was in it, it reminded me of Michael O'Keefe and I were in the play Streamers. Oh, right, yeah. Up at Long Wharf, and Mike Nichols had gone through, he was the director, and he had already gone through, I think, two other actors when Michael showed up to play a soldier who comes in who's uh, really rattled. And Mike, you know, professed not to understand as a director what this little vignette, this opening scene was all about. <laughs> and Michael kept taking running jumps at it and you know, Michael's posture and kind of arched back and looked, he has a, you know, he has a peculiar look, Michael. And, you know, he's a handsome fellow, but he's still, he's kind of wide-eyed, you know. And so he played this character, and I said, you know, it's like, uh, you know, two guys on an acid trip, and only one of them is, is comforting, the other one is bummed out. <laughs> you know, and Michael played it, and but somehow, I don't know when, but along the line, Mike Nichols started calling Michael O'Keefe the weird one. <laughs> <laughs> That always cracked me up, because you know, Michael's such a sweet guy, you know, he's really like kicking ass in this part, and nobody else is coming close. So I think it was Mike Nichols' way of congratulating him and making the scene work, a scene work that he couldn't figure out, and the only way it was figurable it was because of Michael O'Keefe, the weird one. And that's, that's the way I remember the, the movie. Of, because of Michael, but I didn't. I don't remember ever seeing Michael in that movie, <laughs> but I do remember the weird one. <laughs> I've actually put a request to the weird one to do, see if he wants to do the uh, podcast. So, yeah, man. fingers crossed. <laughs> we'll see what, what Mike Nichols meant. <laughs> I don't know. Let's see. I guess the next one on here was one that I, I didn't know if there was going to be a story about or not. So this might be one you want to skip altogether, but. Uh, I, th I think it was just a pilot anyway. Generation Gap? Generation Gap. Let me pull up the... That, that, that's not ringing a bell. Uh, let me pull up the specifics on it here. The TV movie? I th think it was like a, a pilot. Um, but, let's see here. That was one that had like maybe Ed Asner was in it. And Ralph Waite. No. <laughs> then William Hurt. I don't think it was William Hurt. <laughs> you know, I grew up with uh, a guy named John Hurd lived across the street from me. Oh, really? He spelled his name H-U-R-D. <laughs> and my father's name is John Hurd, and I'm John Hurd Jr. And I also grew up with a guy named Richard Hurt. <laughs> and... That that's like followed me all my life, <laughs> and my father was a musician. He was a weekend musician, played the saxophone. And when the phone would ring, 
the kid across the street, John Hurt, also was my age, and he played the guitar. And if I answered the phone and somebody said, is Johnny there? I would say, well, do you mean John, my dad, or John, the musician across the street? Because I know you don't mean me, because nobody calls me Johnny. <laughs> so that, I was always imagining if I went on The Tonight Show, that I would, and people, because back then people did get us mixed up, you know, I would, I would say I'm the, the altered elephant man. <laughs> There was even time. There was even a time when somebody said, "I think John Hurt, the British or what, uh, Irish actor, said that I I called myself John Hurt on purpose <laughs> to confuse the three of us." <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it's uh, you know I've had Hurt heard <laughs> my life. Well, this could be a misidentification, but ostensibly it's some TV movie apparently, and it was. You played a principal in it. Oh, is that the one with when we sat in London and uh, Wimbledon? Um, uh, I don't see Jeremy Irons on this. this is filming locations were now. This is all filmed in California. Played a principal. Yeah, it, there's a, a lot of people in it, but I would guess that most of them probably wouldn't have been in the scenes that you were in if you were playing a principal. Because it says Ed Asner, Rue McClanahan, Ralph Waite, Hal Williams, Catherine Mary Stewart. Nope. Nope. Well, we can skip that one then. <laughs> I'd have looked that up. Yeah, it might, it might not even be you. Yeah. Uh, and then I guess... The, the last one would be uh, Little Hercules in 3D, which I am uh, mostly just curious about because it's such an odd mix of, of people. David Norton <laughs> up out of the blue on that, and we had a good time. I think kind of being, we were like the coaches or something to this kid that was Hercules. Yeah. And I remember meeting uh, Hulk Hogan, <laughs> who was no dummy boy, let me tell you. <laughs> and uh, he was great. He was nice, great guy. And was Robin Givens in that? She was, yes. And I remember how tiny she was. I don't know if that's flattering, but I mean, <laughs> to think of her opposite Mike Tyson. Wasn't she Mike Tyson? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And I just kept looking at her. She had her daughter with her. And she was really sweet. And I just kept imagining her and Mike Dyson. It's kind of like, oh, well, that'll sound racist or something. It's <laughs> like, like a little bird compared to Mike Dyson. Yeah. How she could have inflicted that much punishment. <laughs> her mother. Whatever that was about. But uh, I think David Norton and I exchanged... Uh, remarks or something. Like, it was like I know that Danny Stern and I, when we did Chud, it was it was it's your turn to say oh shit. <laughs> oh no, I said oh shit last time. It's your turn to say it. <laughs> Are you sure? No, I said oh shit. <laughs> you know, oh shit. Oh god, shit. <laughs> and I think David and I did kind of the same thing throughout. We're just and. Uh, I remember an embarrassing day when I didn't know my lines. I don't know why I didn't know them. 
uh, somehow we got through it, but it was like very unusual for some reason. I maybe because it wasn't it wasn't happening. You know what I mean? It was yeah. production was seemed to be always sort of floundering and in trouble. <laughs> and no, <laughs> no little wonder, you know, with somebody like me <laughs> showing up and not knowing what I was saying. <laughs> And a uh, young man that played Hercules, but he was a he was a, a character. He was fun. <laughs> he looked like a little bodybuilder or something. Didn't he? Yeah, I mean, I saw the trailer for it, and I just I just I didn't even know what to make of it, really. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I didn't either. I mean, when you've got Hulk Hogan playing Zeus and Elliot Gould playing Socrates. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's an, you know, it's interesting. I'm in such good company. A lot of times, I don't even know it. <laughs> well, it's funny, David Naughton. I, I did not mention that when we were talking about it, but I guess he was in that production of Hamlet, also. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah. I think where we met. <laughs> Just part of the gang. <laughs> and uh, that's about it. I don't. I can't remember very much else. We played. We shot everything on a big open field and. I think one day we just didn't shoot anymore. <laughs> Is that something? Like the streamers, you know. Mike Nichols just called us up and told us we were all fired. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. <laughs> Is that something that happens frequently or just... <laughs> I've been fired a lot, yeah, actually, when I think about it. Well, I didn't mean you specifically. I was thinking more in terms just of like a production shutting down, but... <laughs> nah, no. Shutting down, no. Yeah. That was unusual. <laughs> but well, being let go, that was I think that's happened more than once or twice. <laughs> well, not for any great reason. We never <laughs> knew why we were let go of stream. We created streamers at Long Wharf and again and Joe Papp and uh, uh, oh my god here I got David Rabe. Uh, who wrote it had this falling out and they got patched up and Joe Pat brought it back to open the Mitzi Newhouse which is the lower theater at the Vivian Beaumont Lincoln Center and actually Joe called me up and asked me he said are you going to do this or not <laughs> and I went huh <laughs> I said well oh and this was interesting about Miguel because Miguel and I were talking we, I haven't seen him for years and I saw him a year ago we had lunch, and he said something. Mike Nichols always said, you were the best one to play Billy. And I said, oh, is that why he fired me? <laughs> and he said, no, he said he fired you because, you know, one of these days, maybe you'll get over all your Catholic hang-ups. <laughs> and I said, what? And he said, what? And he said, you know, you get over all your Catholic hang-ups or something like that. And I said, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> and he said, uh, I said, I, I, I was... Unhappy with Mike because I thought he took all the passion out of the play, humanized it, and it was a very violent play. A lot of violence on stage, and I thought Joe Fields was fantastic. And I think that the story years later was that Joe Fields, Joe wanted to replace Joe because he was older, but he was amazing. <laughs> this amazing actor, and uh, Mike was, I think, intimidated, and he. Uh, he came up to me one afternoon. He said, hey, "John, I, you know, I use Michael's twitches. You know, he's like, so I can't, uh, I can't understand. I can't hear Joe. I can't hear him. 
And I said, uh, well, I can't, and he's scary as hell. <laughs> I said, yeah, that, uh, that's the problem. You know, can you ask him to speak up? Did <laughs> 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 you want me to go over and tell Joe Fields to speak up? <laughs> this huge black man that was, like, incredibly political. <laughs> and I said, uh, he would walk around rehearsal in his untied combat boots with his fatigues on and his shirt out. One time, uh, the way we did the play originally at Long Wharf in the round was that Joe is a is a misfit in a barracks of me and another black actor named Herb Jefferson and Richie Evans, who was a gay uh, draftee, and we were all going to Vietnam. And I didn't want to go to Vietnam with someone who was gay. I didn't want to be in a foxhole with somebody who was gay. And uh, Carlisle, who was Joe Fields, comes in and wants to be, he thinks we're all having a party in here, in our barracks. He thinks he's being excluded from us all drinking and then partying and, I don't know, I guess, bonerizing each other. <laughs> the street, black, ghetto, uh, you know, terror. Yeah. And, uh, we would rehearse it and rehearse it and, and I'm mixing up stories but uh, at, at one point you know he's at the end of the play the character Joe played Carlisle stabs Billy me 43 times uh. that's how it that's pretty much how it ends <laughs> <laughs> and people came and they saw that and they threw their program down the stage and they stormed out and and so they modified all the violence because they felt that it was gratuitous and the audience wasn't prepared for it. And I said, yeah, of course they're not prepared for it. It would be. <laughs> That's a shock value. It was kind of Artodian for me, you know. I'm going like, what? why are you taking all the guts out of this thing, you know? Vietnam was a melting pot <laughs> for the various races and, and, and hair, hell on earth, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, but one time I was, Joe had just had his way with me and stabbed me and I was lying there on the floor in rehearsal and Mike Nichols is an incredibly funny guy, you know, <laughs> and he gets up from the chair he was sitting in and he walked onto the stage and he stepped over me to talk to Joe and as he stepped over to me, he looked down at me and he said, I want you to remember, this man hates you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay. Thanks for the note. <laughs> I guess he tried to talk to Joe. Joe wanted to do things. I don't know. Joe is just so great. And then I, I did approach Joe and I said, Mike can't hear you. And uh, Joe looked at me and he smiled and he laughed. He said, Is there, he, he told you that? And I said, yeah, but you know. I can hear you. <laughs> and uh, his entrance on stage, he comes on stage on his belly doing rat tat 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 rat tat 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 Hey, what y'all doing in here? <laughs> and he's like, you know, snaking along the barracks floor doing his rat tat tat shit, you know? <laughs> and so he's scary from the get-go. Yeah. And then he stands up and he says, you know, he has his lines and we all, the three of us are all standing there kind of in awe, <laughs> shock, you know, like, who was this guy? Where did he come from? What's he going to do to us? 
He just wants to be part. Of, I just want to be part of. I just want to be part of the party, man. <laughs> and uh, after I had said this to Joe, from that point on, there was an upstage exit. There was a screen door that exited into the black behind the set. And every evening when we did the show, I would go off and Joe would come on. <laughs> and as I went off and this, the screen door slammed, Joe was backed up against the, the flat, you know. <laughs> so you could see him. And as I would step off into the dark, he would grab me on <laughs> my shirt and pull me up to him and say, he would look at me and say, John, can you hear me tonight, John? Can you hear me tonight? <laughs> I, said, I hear you, Joe. <laughs> so, there's my, my nibbles. You know, he was a wonderful guy. He said, you know, you got to go, don't, you know, told you, I told you, because we all got fired. He said, what did you do, John? Did you sign a three-month or six-month? And I said, I signed the three. He said, I told you. I told you to sign the six-month contract. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> right. But now, see, I got paid for six months getting fired. You only got three. <laughs> You're smarter than me, so... <laughs> lived right next door to my sister on 85th Street. Oh, wow. Uh, he was one of those actors I was just sort of proud to know of, or we were never buddies or anything, but just one of those actors that just really had his own style, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think Mike just didn't know what to do with that. Kind of like, there was just no question that he was a genius. <laughs> Not at least for me. I mean, I was like, you, you could learn more from Joe Fields' performance in a, in, a, in a night than, you know, five years of acting school. Wow. As far as I'm concerned. <laughs> That's the way I felt. I don't think this guy needs any notes. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have endured it all. Uh, I think the only other thing I was going to ask you is not on the list. Just uh, <laughs> now that Bruce has informed me of this, I have to know why did he call you Johnny Bongo? Uh, Johnny Bongo was when I was uh, with my girlfriend Patricia. She's Cuban, <laughs> and I was always, you know. <laughs> story. <laughs> All right, you have a, you have yeah, I do not know how to play the <laughs> Well, you've endured uh, above and beyond uh, the Call of Duty for this podcast and I very much appreciate it. <laughs> hey, well, you know, it's always fun to go down memory lane, boy. And I figure these are memories you have not had to uh, go through 
in a while, if ever, in some cases. <laughs> yeah. I'm very grateful. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, I guess the, the, I'll hype the movie again coming up. Uh, Jimmy Vestwood, American Hero. Uh, hits theaters May 13th. I hope so. It's going to be pie in the eye if I don't, you know, get a laugh. <laughs> well, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Holding my breath. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, John. He's a funny guy. Naz is funny. Oh, yeah, very much so. I've been a fan of Naz for a while. I'm uh, very much looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, I hope it's I hope it's, I hope it's good. I hope I didn't screw it up. <laughs> I have faith in you. I, I I don't believe that you did. It's interesting. One story on that was one afternoon I was trying to say, "Being you're always so emotional, you know, you yell too much." And I was trying to play the bad guy, and I was trying to at the end of the movie, I was trying to underplay locally, you know. Yeah. And it was the only day that my son Jack came, and he was on the set. And he was walking, actually walking through while we were shooting that scene, and I was being impatient and, come on, let's, you know, so I'm going to try to play it, you know, like the bad guy, like this, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, they rolled the camera, and my, my son Jack just happened to show up, like, minutes before they called action, and I did my scene, and then they cut and did it again, and I was doing this kind of, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you're going to get yours. <laughs> and I, they called cut, and I went over, and I saw my son, Jack, and I said, what do you think, Jack? <clears throat> and he said, Dad, it just needs a little more volume. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> Never know. Everyone's a critic. Hire <laughs> me. <laughs> I had an acting teacher at Catholic University who uh, I went out on tour with King Lear and The Ladies Not for Burning. And we toured high schools and uh, civic auditoriums out of Catholic U graduate school. And I played Cornwall in King Lear. It was supposed to be this big Viking-like, broke busk, plucks the eye out of Gloucester. <laughs> Married to, I guess, uh, Reagan or Goneril, I forget. They're trying to rip their old man off of his kingdom. <clears throat> and, uh, and my best friend at the time, he's gone now, but it's Jim Lang. He played Lear. Yeah. And we would just, he'd screw around. He, he, was, he, was, he was like an actor that just was constantly playing, you know? <laughs> His idea of getting ready was to be playful. <laughs> spin the rug I had to wear as a, around on my neck, you know, this fur that I had to wear, he'd spin it around on my neck right before we had to come on stage. Or <laughs> I had powder on my nose and mess my hair up. Mr. Graham was a teacher at Catholic U and he had said I had gone to him and said um, can I audition for the touring company this year and Mr. Graham who I called Otto <laughs> he was a 50's guy with a pompadour kind of wave in the front and always had this you know shark shark like Skinny tie, blue, black shoes, and he was a good-looking man, but he was outdated. 
<laughs> but he was our acting teacher, and I went up and I said, Mr. Graham, Mr. Graham, you know, can I go out? Can I try out for the touring company? Can I try out for the touring company? <laughs> he looked at me and he said, he was always going, mm, L-I-F-E, John, L-I-F-E, you know? <laughs> it's L-I-F-E, John, L-I-F-E. I went, can I try out for the, and he said, yeah, 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 you, you want to you try out for the touring company? And I said, mm. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's L-I-F-E, John, L-I-F-E. <laughs> so, so I suppose, why not? Everybody else is in Vietnam. <laughs> oh, thank you, Mr. Graham. <laughs> You have a leer in you at some point? God, that would be you know, fantastic. If I haven't been on stage in 20, you know, 15 years. <laughs> but I don't think I have the vocal uh, power. Or the. But I, you know, I played old men because they didn't know what to do with me because of my posture. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, I never played leading men or any of that kind of stuff. So maybe (laughs) I could uh, play the old guy. Blow winds and crack your cheeks. Sure. Uh, Jim and I would hang out on tour, and he played Lear, and he had to put on all kinds of crepe hair and a wig that was white and act enfeebled. (laughs) Two years old. (laughs) 25 years old, maybe, grad school. And we would go out afterwards, and we, we played colleges. I remember playing once at Butler University in Pennsylvania, and these two girls, we picked them up, went out in the woods, had a good time, <laughs> back in school, told them that we were hitchhiking across country. And the show was on that night, and they came to see the show. They didn't know we were in it. <laughs> and after the show, the one girl that I called, nicknamed her Stanley, <laughs> nicknamed her his girlfriend... Uh, uh, swamp them or something. <laughs> Poncho or swamp them or powwow or. And we met them in the student union later and they were very excited and they had seen this wonderful play and King Lear and the guy that played King Lear they thought was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and Jim was standing right next to me. <laughs> really? Is that good? And I said, oh man, I mean, uh, he must be a young guy but he's just blows you away. It's just so perfect and great. It was just made the play so much more enjoyable to watch Shakespeare. I mean, you know, who watches Shakespeare? And they went on and on. And Jim talked sort of like this, you know, and he went, finally, I was at the bar with them on my side and Jim was on the other side and finally he sort of stuck his head around and he said, the guy that played King Lear was me. <laughs> and these, these two girls looked at him and said, oh, get out of here. He was not. Out of here! Why are you saying that? And they didn't believe him. <laughs> that he's the guy that played King Lear. They thought it was so great. That's awesome. <laughs> Apparently, he was that great. 
We had, we always can, we, we went to school together in the grad school department at Catholic U and all. We wanted we want to start our own company of extra uh, extra supernumeraries. <laughs> and we thought that we would always work if we were never identifiable as spear carriers. <laughs> and we would have our own agency and we would hire ourselves out as professional spear carriers if you need one or both. And you don't have to worry about us becoming overly ambitious or charging you too much money here. You know. But we have an agency of people that just want to be spear carriers in the play. <laughs> we protect our what we call our anonymity. We wanted to be a, we wanted to be anonymous. <laughs> anonymous actors uh, office. That's how we were gonna have careers. But Jim actually got pissed off at Catholic U because they didn't cast him in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern when they built their new theater and Claude Chagrin directed it and he went off to the Berkshires and performed playing the guitar, writing poetry and songs and gave up acting. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> and, and I went on to be successful for a number of years there and he couldn't believe it. <laughs> be like, you know, what's what's so great about you? <laughs> it's because I hung out with you for two years. Not that. Excellent. Anything else you want to know? No, I think you've endured enough. Between uh, between the random roles interview and this, I think we've covered pretty much every aspect of your career at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so is my interview any different from anybody else's? No, I mean it, it ran a little longer, but I mean that's mostly my fault because I brought up Hamlet and I knew the risks there. But I brought Paul Hamlet. Had to ask. <laughs> well, the golf ball just sat there next to Sam's cast, you know, like it was part of the show. He <laughs> didn't see it. Everybody else was riveted on this white golf ball in the middle of his speech. <laughs> Just goes to show you. It's funny. I uh, I didn't do random roles with him, but uh, a couple months ago I, I did an interview with uh, Richard Dreyfus, and uh, <laughs> it, it didn't come up in his interview. But all I could think of was uh, the, your story about total abandon when I was talking to him. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What did I tell you? I don't remember talking about that. Uh, just about uh, the fact that it was just the the one nighter, I guess it was, right? Yeah. Yeah. Weren't even bolted. Yeah. <laughs> and the next night, the show was closed. Boy, something. But it's funny because he had his own story about uh, uh, was it, uh, Julius Caesar that apparently a production had gone just <laughs> terribly wrong. <laughs> That he said, uh, he said, I got the only piece of advice from a critic that was ever taken to heart <laughs> by me, which is, uh, he said, Walter Kerr said, if Richard Dreyfus wants to continue playing Shakespeare in his career, he should learn to be still. <laughs> <laughs> like Richard Burton. <laughs> yeah, I could yeah. That makes sense. It's tendency to want to hop around. <laughs> yeah, he said he 
we realized uh, that he, he was physically distracting, is what he said. <laughs> Stand and deliver. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks so much, John. I, I really appreciate you uh, being willing to endure this. <laughs> I mean, it was fun. And uh, if, you, if you talk about anybody that, that I know, tell them I said hello. Don't see much of the old gang anymore. Absolutely. Yeah, I, uh, I keep... Uh, I get out to L.A., Generally, if the budget is there, twice a year for the Television Critics Association, and I, I've met up with Bruce at least once while I'm out there. I keep. Uh, Where does this air? Uh, this is actually just online. It's going to be uh, on iTunes, and I've got a, a homepage for the the uh, podcast also. But I'll send you the link as soon as it goes live. I got to do a, an edit of it, so I would think it'll probably be up by. It may be up before the weekend's out, maybe Monday. Well, how long, you know, how long is it? Uh, well, let's see, we've been talking now for... Two hours. Yeah, it, I will probably trim it down a little bit here and there, but uh, it'll probably still go a good uh, hour and a half, but i got no complaints with that. I mean, people can listen to it in segments if they want. They're great stories, and that's that, that's the whole point of this. Uh, I wanted to find some angle that was at least a little bit unique from an interview standpoint, and I figured asking about the stuff that nobody would ever think to ask about it's as good an angle as any. <laughs> Did Bruce tell you the story about Jamie Widows and his dad? No, but I, if, I feel like I need to hear it. <laughs> it could be off the record. <laughs> it's kind of, it kind of classic. His father, Jamie, you remember Jamie Widows? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Animal House? Yeah. He was on Broadway and something, and his, his dad came to see him. <laughs> and his father had asked his friends around, like, what is the appropriate thing to do on opening night? for my son, you know? Mm -hmm. He said, well, well what's, what's the traditional, what do you say, what did you get him something, I mean, you know, give my son flowers, you know, or something. But. <laughs> and uh, his fellow actors said, you just, uh, you know, just say, have a good show and break a leg. <laughs> and Jamie will know exactly what you mean. <laughs> and so his father went, okay, I can, I can remember that. And uh, so it's opening night, and Jamie's getting ready to leave and to go to the green room for a half hour, and his dad looks at him and says, Son, I want you to have a good show and drop dead. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a true story. I'm surprised he didn't tie in. That was really... Bull used to call uh, Robert Redford, he made up the term Ordinary Bob. Every time, ordinary Bob. You mean ordinary Bob? Yeah, ordinary Bob. <laughs> so. Excellent. I always like that Jamie Widow story. That always cracked me up. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I didn't think about it until you said that. I actually met Jamie, like, once. Uh, my first uh, television critics press tour, he, he was there. And I was like, oh, my God. It's such an honor to meet you. Yeah, I think he's a director now. Or yeah, predominantly. I think very, very rarely he pops up in front of the camera, but mostly it's directing, like sitcoms for the most part. I just recently watched Animal House all the way through, <laughs> and I had totally forgotten how much Miguel had to do with, with Belushi. Yeah. Because I never, I don't think I ever heard uh, Miguel tell of Belushi or did I? I don't know if they hung out or anything, but... 
Well, she was down in the village when I used to live on Grove Street. We used to come over and knock on my window and stuff and go out to the bars and hang out and stuff. And he'd do his little, <clears throat> make that little impish face and tap people on one shoulder and show up on the other. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Everybody loved, everybody loved him. I mean, he, could, he could do anything. He could get away with anything. That's what I've heard. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but when I saw him doing D-Day and I saw Belushi and him in the movie, I just thought, man, why don't you ever bring, bring, uh, bring him around? You know? <laughs> it might have been dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Might still be here. <laughs> That's true. But who knows? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I'm still here. Absolutely. You've been listening to Obscurity Knox, and now you're not. Look for us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just remember on Twitter, Knox is spelled K-N-O-X, and we're not bitter about that. No, really, we're not. Also, for a slightly more detailed look into the projects covered by this week's guest, head over to newsreviewsinterviews.com. Thanks for checking us out, and don't be afraid to check us out again. If you keep listening, we'll keep digging for more obscurities. See you next time. <laughs>